Well, Happy New Year, First Church. Hope you guys have a great start to 2020. And we are one church that meets in more than one location. So right now we have family joining us from our Stone Canyon campus. So those others watching online. So if you would, let's take a moment. Let's welcome them into our time of study here this morning. Well, I'm not sure how you celebrated the new year, but I got to celebrate it with my family back in Kentucky. We went back last week and saw my family and Allison's family. And one night we were visiting with my family, my brother and his uh, wife and, and son were there. And all of a sudden I heard this commotion coming from the back of our house. And it was really loud. And all of a sudden I heard this vibration, like the whole house was shaking. I thought, what is going on? So I went to my parents' back porch and this is what I saw. I pulled out my phone and I filmed it. And this is what I saw taking place. Now, that's my mom in the background with her three grandchildren. And so it's Addie and then her and Alex's ne uh, nephew or cousin, I'm sorry, my nephew, and Tyler. And then that's my son, Alex, over there who's dancing like a crazy man. He's going to get ready to show us his backside here in just a second because that's just him. That's what he does. And so they're dancing, having a good time. But my mom, every time I talk to her, she talks about how she's getting older and she's getting tired and she's not able to do the things she used to do. She can't wait to retire. And then she does that. And I'm just amazed at how grandchildren change everything. And some of you guys have probably experienced that and you've seen that happen as well. But needless to say, my family, we had a good time celebrating bringing in the new year. And I hope you guys did as well. Well, there's a lot of stuff that a new year is known for, whether it's making resolutions, reflecting back on the past year, watching football, celebrating on the parties. There's a lot of stuff that happens every new year. But one thing that happens that you might not be aware of is that the people who do the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, they update the entries in their dictionary and they add new words that have become popular in culture. And so I thought I would share with you some of the new words that are going to be added to the 2020 edition of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. And here's one. You may have heard of this word. I have. It's the word fabulosity. Basically, what it means is it's a fabulous quality, state, or nature. So I don't know if you can describe your life with the word fabulosity or not. Uh, I really can't, but I guess some people can. I never heard of this word before, but they only add words that are becoming popular in culture. So maybe you've heard of this one. Here's another new entry to the 2020 dictionary. This is the word chlorophobia. Anybody know what this means? Chlorophobia? It's the abnormal fear of clowns. So if you have a fear of clowns, you're chlorophobic, okay? Uh, you may not know that, but this is a new entry to the 2020 dictionary. And here's the thing. I really don't have an abnormal fear of clowns, but I watched this commercial the other day on TV that was put out by an insurance company, Farmer's Insurance. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's about a clown car that rear-ends someone. And here's a picture from the commercial. And all the clowns like keep coming out of this car, and they gather around this guy to say they're sorry for hitting him. And it kind of freaked me out a little bit, honestly. But the clip that really got me was this one, when a clown pops up from the back seat of the car and says, I'm sorry, like real serious. I, I was freaked out. I really was. I was like, maybe I am a chlorophobic. I don't know. Here's another word that was added to the 2020 edition of the dictionary, dad joke. Now, you guys know what this is, I'm sure. This is a common phrase. A dad joke, it's a wholesome joke with a punchline that is often an obvious or predictable pun or play on words, usually judged to be corny or unfunny. Let me give an example of this. You go out to lunch today and your food comes, you're sitting at the table and you turn to your family and you say, you know, for the new year I thought about going on a diet but my plate is just too full. 
but um bum Okay, no, it wasn't great. It wasn't a great joke. You know why? It's a dad joke because it's not funny, but dads think that they are. So you probably have your own dad jokes that you've heard or you've told yourself. One more entry I want to share with you. This is a nomo, this is nomophobia, and this actually is not, uh, this was not added to the 2020 edition. This was added to the uh, 2019 edition, but I thought I would share it with you because it describes me and it probably describes many of you as well. And this is what this word means, a fear of being without your cell phone. Anybody have that fear? You ever left your house to go to work or go to church and you realize that you left your phone behind and what do you do? You freak out, right? You panic and you got to turn back around and go back home. How many of you guys did that this morning? Anybody do it this morning? If you, oh, I see a couple hands. All right, if you left your phone, you got to turn back around and go get it. I understand. So every single year, the dictionary adds new entries. And for the past few weeks, we've been leading up to our New Year series, this new series. We've been introducing a new word, a word probably you hadn't heard of before, a word that's probably brand new to your vocabulary, and it's this. It's the word Majnik. I want everybody to say Majnik with me on the count of three. Are you ready? One, two, three. Majnik. And you may be wondering what this word means. Hopefully you figured it out. You guys are smart people. Majnik is just the word kingdom backwards. Okay? Maybe you're not as quick as I thought you were. All right. That's, all, that's okay because we're going to explain why this word is important. I believe this word Majnik is central to who we are as followers of Jesus. I believe it's an extremely important term. I think it's a life-changing term. So hang with me, and I'll explain why this word, why this term is so important. That's what this series is all about. See, in Jesus' most famous sermon, known as the Sermon on the Mount, is actually the first sermon we have recorded that Jesus ever preached. It's found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Jesus talks about what life is supposed to be all about, what real life is. And in this sermon, he gives us a lot of practical teaching about life. And one thing he does is he introduces us to a model for prayer. He says, this is how you should pray. We often refer this section of the Sermon on the Mount as the Lord's Prayer. You've probably heard it before. It goes like this, our Father which are in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then the next line in this model example prayer is this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I dare say you've probably heard that phrase before because the Lord's Prayer is pretty popular. It's well-known. Maybe you memorized it as a kid growing up in church. Maybe you heard it in different public gatherings like at a funeral or some memorial service. Maybe you heard it in a football or basketball locker room because sometimes teams will say it before they go out and play. I'm not sure where you've heard it, but I bet you've heard it before. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And even though we are familiar with that phrase... I'm afraid that in our culture today, even our church culture, that phrase has lost its meaning. Because Jesus never intended for the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, to be a ritualistic thing that we just do whenever we need some extra comfort or strength in life. He meant for it to be an example for us. He was introducing themes that he wanted us to pray for. These words were supposed to shape our prayer life. And one thing that Jesus wanted us to pray for on a consistent, regular basis is for his kingdom to come, for his Father's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, Jesus wants us praying He wants us to ask for God's kingdom to come to earth. He wants us to pray for God's kingdom reign to be expanded 
from heaven to earth. That's what he's asking us to pray for. Let me put it this way. What Jesus wants us to ask for, what Jesus wants us to pray for, is for what's going on up there to happen down here. For what's going on up there in heaven to happen down here. And there's a reason why he wants us to pray this prayer. Because what's going on down here on earth, it isn't working. You see, we've corrupted the life that God designed us to live. And the life that's been handed down to us, the cookie-cutter existence that this world has handed down to us, it isn't working. Because you can have everything that this present world offers you, you can have it all and still feel very empty on the inside. Still feel very discontent. Still go to bed every single night feeling as if there's something more out there that your soul, that your heart needs. This cookie-cutter existence that's been handed down to us from the world, it isn't working. And so what Jesus came to do was to restore life to us, real life. He wants to restore to us the life that God originally designed us to live. And that's why Jesus says in John 10, verse 10, he says, I came to give life, life in all its fullness. In other words, if you really want to live, if you really want to live with true meaning and true satisfaction, true contentment, true peace, true purpose, you really want to live a full, whole life. That's what I came to bring you. That's my whole purpose for coming. I want to show you, I want to teach you how to really live. And by really live, he means really live now. Emphasis on the word now. And I emphasize the word now because I don't think the church has done a very good job emphasizing that in the past. See, I grew up in church. I've mentioned that to you guys before. I'm what you call a Buick, a brought-up-in-church kid. I grew up in church, so I grew up hearing a lot of sermons, a lot of teachings. And if you were to ask me as a kid, what's the point of going to church? I would have said, well, we need to accept Jesus so we can go to heaven when we die. That's what I would have said. And some of you guys think that's a pretty good answer. And yes, Jesus did come to die for our sins so that we can spend all eternity in heaven with God. I'm not denying that. And that's his primary purpose for coming. It's to die for our sins so that we can go and be with him. That's true. But it's not his only purpose for coming. See, Jesus didn't die just so that we could go to heaven when we die. He also died so that heaven could come to earth. So that heaven could come to earth through us while we are here. And let me give an example of why I think that's true. Take the Gospels, for example. You know, the Gospels are the accounts of Jesus' life. We have four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just look at the first Gospel account, the book of Matthew. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew, you will see that chapters 1 and 2 describe the birth of Jesus. And we just studied some of those passages in our last series as we celebrated Jesus' birth during the Christmas season. But then if you jump to the end, you'll see chapters 26 through 28 describe the arrest, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And these are the two parts of the gospel that a lot of people put all their focus on. They focus on the birth of Jesus and they focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we should focus on these two things. These two things are extremely important. Don't misunderstand me. But a lot of people they say, hey, I got to come to church during the Christmas season. I got to come to church during the Easter season because that's what's most important. But I want you to pay careful attention to something. Only five chapters describe the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. 
There are 23 other chapters. And let me ask you, why are they there? Why is this whole middle part there? Why didn't Jesus just come to the earth in whatever way God wanted him to come and then go right to the cross? Why did he have to live life? Why do we have all these chapters, the majority of the gospel, why do we have all this content about Jesus' way of life and his teachings? Because Jesus came to show us how to live. He came to show us what real life looks like. He came to teach us a better way of life. And it's not just the gospel of Matthew where we find this. Look at all four gospel narratives. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have five total chapters in the four gospels on the birth of Jesus. We have 13 total chapters that record Jesus' arrest, death, and resurrection. And then we have 71 chapters on his life and his teachings about life. Why? Because Jesus came to show us how to bring up there, down here. Why is it that when we're baptized in the Christ and first accept Jesus, we're not taken right up to heaven? Because there's something God wants us to do before we go to heaven. And that's to bring heaven here. And when you look at those 71 chapters that record Jesus' way of life and his teachings about life, you will see one common theme over and over and over again. And it's the theme of his kingdom, the kingdom of God. In fact, you see that theme 126 times in the four gospels. And oftentimes when Jesus would introduce us to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, this is how he would introduce us to it. He would say, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now if you didn't know what was coming next, you would probably assume if that's the only content you had, you would probably think that Jesus is getting ready to describe heaven up there, right? That's what he's going to do. Talk about heaven one day when we die. But every single time that Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, you know what he does next? He gives us practical life advice. He tells us how to live now. You know why? Because the whole point of this is for us to bring heaven to earth through our daily lives. When Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, he is basically saying this. He is saying, if you want to go to the next slide, this is how you allow God's kingdom up there to come down here. Now, I don't know what you have in mind when you hear the word kingdom. I don't know if you think of something from medieval times or if you think of something you've seen in a TV show or a movie. I don't know if you think of your own personal little kingdom, you know, like for some people, their truck is their kingdom. You know what I'm talking about? You don't touch their truck because they've got everything just the way they liked it. They keep it waxed and washed. I mean, they, the seats are just in the right spot. The air conditioning is set just where they like it. The radio stations are set to their favorite radio stations. The mirrors are just where they like them, and you don't mess with their little kingdom. They're their truck is their kingdom. Maybe you think of your own personal kingdom. Maybe it's not your truck. Maybe it's your tool shed or it's your home office. Maybe it's your she shed or your kitchen or boat or whatever. I don't know what your kingdom is. and I don't know what you think of when you hear the word kingdom. But let me tell you what Jesus is talking about when he uses the term kingdom. He's talking about a sphere of influence. So when he says God's kingdom or the kingdom of heaven, what he's talking about is he wants for God's influence 
to expand from heaven to earth so that God's influence spreads all over God's creation so that God reigns on earth in our lives, in our hearts, as he does in heaven. And here's the thing. What Jesus here is describing, this new kingdom, this new sphere of influence, it's very different from what we're used to. And I think we have the wrong idea of the church. I think a lot of people, when they hear you need to be part of the church, what they hear is you need to join a social club or a country club, a Christian moral country club. That's what they have in mind. And when Jesus talks about his church, what he's talking about is a kingdom, a people who gather together, who live under the reign, the influence of God our Father. What he is doing, he's inviting us to join a kingdom. And his kingdom is very different from life as we know it. He showed us that in his life. I mean, just look at the life of Jesus. He lived like no one else ever lived, and he taught things that no one else ever taught. I mean, Jesus says that he didn't come to be served, but to serve. Remember that? In other words, hey, I've come to be king overall, but I'm not here for people to wait on me. I'm here to serve others. That's not what we're used to. When we think of power and authority, we think of having people wait on us. But Jesus said, I'm not here to have other people wait on me. I am here to serve others, even to serve those who don't deserve it. That's backward. That's upside down. But that's who Jesus is, and that's the life he lived. You see, Jesus, he didn't come to reign from a palace. He came to reign from the cross. He didn't come to take our lives from us. He came to lay down his life for us. And here's the thing. Even though his life was very different from anything the world had ever seen before, that's the life that he's calling you and me to live. And Jesus says, you want to live in my kingdom? This is what you got to do. In my kingdom, the first will be last, and the last will be first. In my kingdom, greatness is achieved by making yourself Less, not by promoting yourself. In my kingdom, the strong must first become weak. In my kingdom, the humble are exalted. In my kingdom, it's better to give than it is to receive. In my kingdom, you don't hate your enemies, but you love your enemies and you pray for your enemies. In my kingdom, if you want to experience life, you've got to be willing to lay your life down. And in our world... That's not how things work. I mean, in our world, you don't turn the other cheek. You lawyer up. In our world, you don't admit your weaknesses. You promote your own strength. In our world, you don't love your enemies. You conquer your enemies and you defeat your enemies. In our world, the first are first. The last aren't first, and if you're not first, then you better lie, cheat, and steal in order to get in first place. Because in our world, the first are first. So when Jesus comes to us and says, hey, I've got a new way of life, and this is the only way to really live, it shakes us. It disorients us. It feels uncomfortable because it's upside down. It's backwards. It's majnik. You get it now? It seems backward. But it's the way life was intended to be lived. Because even though Jesus' kingdom might seem backward at first glance, it's the better way to live. It's the best way to live. 
It's not the easiest way to live. In fact, Jesus never promised that his way of life would be easier. What he promised was that his way of life would be better. Better than the life that sin corrupted. Better than the life that this world has handed down to us. He never promised it'd be easy. But he said it would be better, that it would be the best way to live. Because here's the thing, when you actually live out the Jesus-shaped way of life, you experience what this world can offer. A sense of contentment and joy and peace that money and power and influence can't buy. And here's the thing, as you live the Jesus-shaped way of life, it not only brings you all those things, but it changes the world around you. You know, I showed you that video of my family being at my mom and dad's house, and my parents live in a two-story home, and growing up, my brother's bedroom and my bedroom were upstairs, and my parents, everything else was downstairs, and since my brother and I, we moved out, my parents don't really use the upstairs at all, but when we come in and stay, it's their guest room, so we stay upstairs, and something happened when my brother and I moved out. My parents... They started to collect stuff. Like they started to collect all this like glassware and antique stuff and stuff that costs way too much money. And I don't know what happened, but somewhere when I was in college and moved out or whatever, my parents turned their home into a museum to the point that you're like afraid to touch anything. And so when grandchildren came along, Alice and I were very nervous about them playing at my parents' house because there's a lot of breakable, expensive stuff everywhere. So a lot of times when we come over to stay with them, we kind of keep our kids upstairs as much as we can because we don't want them to break anything because they have they broke stuff in the past and even this past trip there was a time when my kids were playing upstairs they were making a lot of noise playing up there and my dad yelled up and he said hey Chad bring the kids down here I'm like dad I don't want them to break anything and he said no no no, it's okay it's fine we want down here what's up there because they want to spend time with their grandkids they want the joy and the excitement and the fun that grandchildren bring, they want that down there. You know what? This trip, Alex did break something. But you know what? My parents didn't even care. If I would have done, I would have been in trouble. But they didn't care that he broke it. Because what Alex brings is worth disrupting their way of life. And I think that's how the world will feel as we introduce them to Jesus. At first, it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be different and they're not going to be used to it. But the more they experience this life that Christ offers, the more they're going to want it. And we're going to tell them, hey, but Jesus, he's going to change everything. He's going to upset your little world. He's going to upset your little kingdom. And they're going to say, that's okay because you have something that I don't have. You have something that my soul longs for. And the more they experience it and see it, they're going to want it. And so that's what this series is all about. What this upside down, backwards life looks like. What Majnik looks like. And there's no better place where Jesus summarizes his kingdom way of life than that sermon I mentioned just a few minutes ago, the Sermon on the Mount. See, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus preaches this first message that we have recorded, and he preaches it up on a mountainside. He gathers all these people together, and he teaches them about what his way of life is like. He teaches them how to live in his kingdom. And one of the theme verses in the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 6, verse 33. Look what Jesus says. He says, seek the kingdom of God above all else. 
and live righteously, and he, God, will give you everything you need. Did you catch that? Seek the kingdom of God above all else. In other words, live, God, live for God, live for his way of life. That's what he means by live righteously. And what will happen? God will give you everything you need. Notice Jesus doesn't say he'll give you everything you want. He doesn't say he'll make life easy. But he says he'll give you everything you need. In other words, you will live a satisfied, content life. You will have the life that your soul has been longing for. Jesus doesn't give us everything we want, but he gives us everything we need. And I'm going to warn you, in order to live that life, what Jesus says is going to disturb some of us, it's going to shock some of us, it's going to make us feel uncomfortable, because honestly, what we need is to be rewired. We need to be reshaped, reoriented. We need to be rewired, because the life that's been given to us, what's been sold to us as life, isn't real life. Let me illustrate it like this. I have a, with me on the stage a bicycle. You've probably heard the phrase before, it's like riding a bike. And what people mean by that is, you know, you can learn to ride a bike as a child and then go without riding a bike for years. And then once you hop back on one, you may be a little shaky at first, but you get it pretty quick. It's like riding a bike. Once you learn the algorithm in your brain how to ride a bike, you pretty much know how to do it. And that's true. However, there are some researchers who studied the science of neuroplasticity, which is basically the study of how the brain modifies itself. And they designed a bike which they refer to as the backwards brain bike. And basically, this bike that they designed did the opposite of a normal bike. So if you turn left, it went right. If you turn right, it went left. And I was actually in a room with a huge group of people where they brought this bike out on stage and they asked people to come up on stage and ride it across the stage. And if you did it, they would give you a large sum of money. Do you realize that adult after adult tried to ride this bike and they couldn't do it without falling off or their feet touching the ground? They couldn't do it. Because once you learn how to ride a bike, it's hard to then do the opposite. But here Here's the thing, these researchers have proven that if an adult, day after day for eight months, will learn how to ride this bike, they can master it after eight months. But they've got to practice. And then, after eight months, riding this new bike just becomes second nature. It becomes natural. And that's the way it is with Jesus' teachings. At first, Jesus' teachings, they sound hard, almost impossible, like, can we do this? But the more you practice it, the more you put it into practice, the more it just becomes second nature. The more natural it becomes to where your old way of life is what seems unnatural. Your old way of life just doesn't make sense anymore. And we should want to do this because we understand that our current way of life, it isn't working, it isn't really living. And that's the point that Jesus is going to make as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I know we're at the start of this series on the Sermon on the Mount, and you would think that I would begin at the beginning of the sermon, but actually, in this first sermon, we're going to look at the end of the sermon, the conclusion. And I don't know if you've ever been reading a book and you've jumped to the end. I have. I do that a lot, actually. I jump to the end and read the ending first. Well, the reason why you do this is because you want to know the point. You know, you want to know if it's worth it or not. And here, I want to jump to the end of the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus gives us the point of why he tells us about this new way of life to begin with. And look at what he says. Jesus tells a parable to conclude the sermon. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. If you have your Bibles and want to follow along with me, you can. It's also on our First Church app. And look at what Jesus says. He says, Therefore, 
everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice actually does what I'm telling you to do. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I don't know if you've heard that parable before or not. I grew up in children's church learning that little song about the parable, you know. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. And the house on the rock stood firm. And then you talk about the foolish man. And the house on the stand went splat. As a kid, I love doing that splat. I'll stop singing, I promise. But uh, when Jesus' first century listeners who were on the mount that day and heard that sermon heard the parable, they didn't think of a children's song. They thought about real life. Remember, Jesus is in the Middle East. There's sand everywhere. This was common sense. You did not build a house. You did not build a structure on sand. Probably everybody listening to Jesus' sermon that day knew of someone who had tried to build a house on sand. And the house stood for a while until the first major storm came along. And then the house was destroyed. Everybody listening to this parable, listening to this sermon, would have agreed in principle to what Jesus is talking about. But we all know Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't talking about houses or temples or any type of building structure. He's talking about our lives. Because he knows we're all building our lives on something, good or bad. We're all building our lives on something. And the foundation of your life matters because if you get the foundation wrong, then you're headed for disaster. So let me ask you guys today at both our campuses, what are you building your life on? Are you building your life on something toxic? And you know what that is right now? Are you building your life on something that's a good thing but God never intended it to be an ultimate thing? Like, are you building your life right now on your family, on your job, on your spouse, on some relationship, on some friendship? All that stuff is good stuff that God intends you to have, but it's not an ultimate thing. See, here's the thing. If you are building your life on anything besides Jesus, what you're building your life on is sand. And here's the thing about sand. Sand is unstable. Sand is always shifting, always moving beneath us. And if you're building your life on anything but Jesus, you're building your life on a shaky foundation. What Jesus came to give us was a life that is stable. Not necessarily a life that's easy, but a life that's stable and a life that endures because he knows something. He knows that no matter what you build your life on, storms are going to come. Because we live in a fallen world, a world that's been corrupted by darkness, a world that's been tainted by sin. And because of that, storms are going to come. Did you notice in the parable, the storm came upon both the wise builder and the foolish builder. Storms don't discriminate. And you may have grown up in a church that taught you, hey, if you live right, then you're going to avoid storms. That's not the truth. That's not what Jesus teaches. Storms come upon us all. So here's the thing. 
You may not be able to predict the strength of a storm, but you can have confidence in the strength of your foundation. You can survive a storm. You can make it through a storm and still have peace and contentment and satisfaction and all that stuff that Jesus promises if your foundation is right. Because what Jesus tells us about life, it is true. It is right. He knows what's best for us. And it does work. And so the question that we all have to ask today is, what are we going to do with it? As we look at the Sermon on the Mount over the next six weeks, what are we going to do with these teachings? Because if you notice in the parable, both the wise man and the foolish man both knew what they needed to do. Because Jesus says, it's like a man who hears my words, but puts it in practice or doesn't. Both the wise and foolish men knew what to do, but one of those men chose to do the opposite of what was best. And that's the definition of foolishness, doing the opposite of what's best. And so what I need to ask you is, who is Jesus to you? Because if he really is king, aren't you going to listen to him? If he really did create you and design life, don't you think he knows what's best? Because the Sermon on the Mount, it's not suggestions on the Mount. It's the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus isn't giving us just a bunch of self-help advice that we can pick and choose what we want in order to make our lives a little bit better. He's telling us this is the only way to really live. And I know from personal experience that what Jesus teaches us, it works. Guys, I have ruined many a day in my household because of my own selfishness. And if I just would have listened to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, if I just would have listened to what he said in Matthew 5, 5, that blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth, I could have prevented a lot of family strife and heartache, turmoil. But I chose to live for my own kingdom rather than his. Guys, I have poisoned relationships in my life because of my own lack of grace and bitterness. I have hurt those I dearly love because of my own greed and my own lust. I have found myself in very dark places because of my own pride and arrogance. And what I've had to learn the hard way is what some of you have learned as well. Jesus isn't crazy. He knows what he's talking about. He knows what's best for our lives and his way of life works. It may not be easy, but it's always what's best. And so what you need to decide today is how are you going to respond to his call, his invitation to live for a new kingdom? Because this is how the crowds responded after the Sermon on the Mount. It says in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. I love that word amazed, and our English translations really don't capture what that word meant. That word meant, means to be knocked down hard, to be knocked over, to be struck to a point that you're off balance. 
I made the comment that uh, my family got to spend some time with my parents and my in-laws over the holidays. And one night we were in my in-laws' basement and some of my kids' cousins were there and my nephews were there and they were all playing. And Alex, my son, picked up this huge plastic ball and he started to knock down his cousin with this ball. And here's a video. I thought it was kind of funny. Alex would just run right. They'd run into one another and he'd fall down. And this happened over and over again. You'll see it a couple more times where he just kind of falls back. But he... he he wiped out, I don't know how many times. They just kept doing this over and over and over again. And we laughed as we just saw Alex knock him over again and again. And guys, I think that's how the people who first heard the Sermon on the Mount felt. Jesus knocked them down. He blew them away. They found themselves totally off balance because they realized the way that they had been living wasn't right. And it's my prayer that this series that this sermon that we're going to look at, that it wakes us up, that it knocks us down from where we've been standing because where some of us have been standing is sand and we need a solid foundation. We need to get off the sand and stand back up on the rock that is Jesus because he's our only true source of stability and strength and life. And so let me ask you, will you, do, will you join Majnik? Will you join God's kingdom, Jesus' invitation to live a new life, which is in all reality the only way to live? I know from personal experience, I wouldn't want to live for anything else but Majnik. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for today, and I thank you for this opportunity we had to open up your word and to be awakened to the truth that life as we know it isn't working, but that your son came to provide a new way of life for us, that his kingdom is what's best, even though it may seem backward at first. In all reality, it's not backward. We're what's backward. And we need to be reoriented. We need to be rewired. So, Father, I pray if there's anybody here who needs to take a step to move toward your kingdom today, that they will do it before they leave this place. I lift up this church in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our king. Amen.